This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I'd recommend that you go all the way back to episode one as this series is meant to go in order to provide context for the things that we're going to talk about. And in this particular subject, context is actually really important. I just want to give a minute to thank my donors, people that have supported me and those who have become monthly subscribers. I really appreciate the support. Thank you so much. I'd also like to congratulate those who have been following the series, but you have survived the Mormon fundamentalist period. Congratulations. There were a few episodes that were really, really difficult. And now we're going to get back into sort of LDS church history and to try to bring the LDS church from its abandonment of polygamy until contemporary times, where we like to pretend that we have nothing to do with polygamy whatsoever at all, yet we still haven't repudiated it. So we're going to try to figure out why. There's about 10 episodes left in this series, and then I'm going to take a break for a while. So I hope you enjoy these 10 episodes. I want to talk about someone that you might not have ever heard of. Of course, her namesake would suggest she was an important person. She had Mormon royalty. Her last name would be Smith. Her name was Julina Lamson Smith. She would be born on my birthday, June 18th, in 1849. And she was a very prominent woman in the LDS Church. So it's kind of sad that some of us don't know who she is. If you know who Julina Lamson Smith is, pat yourself on the back, give yourself, as Packer would say, a kiss and a cookie, and be happy that you know of this incredible woman. From 1910 to 1921, she was a member of the General presidency of the Relief Society. She was also the second wife of Joseph F. Smith. But not only was she a wife to the prophet, she was a mother of Joseph Fielding Smith, who would also be a prophet. She is really the only woman in the history of the LDS Church to have been the wife of the president of the church and the mother of another church president. And this brings up some interesting things. The idea that we really only know women if we know them at all because of their association to prominent men. This is a problem with history in general. But this is a distinction that she has. She was born to Alfred Boaz Lamson and Melissa Jane Bigler in the Salt Lake, Utah Territory. Her parents were Mormon pioneers who arrived in Utah in 1847, and her family's home has the distinction of being the first house in Salt Lake City to be plastered. It would be in 1866 that she first married Joseph F. Smith in the endowment house. It would be Joseph F. Smith's second marriage, and she was his first plural wife. 
Joseph would go on to be an apostle in the LDS Church, and then he would later become the sixth president of the church. Between Julina and Joseph F. Smith, they would have 11 children, one of who happened to be Joseph Fielding Smith, who was also a long-time apostle and church president from 1970 to 1972. And her son, she had another son, David Smith, who became a member of the church's presiding bishopric. In 1870, when the young women's, when the first young women's retrenchment society was organized in Salt Lake City, Julina was selected as one of its first ward presidents in the ward level. In 1892, she became a member of the General Board of Relief Society. She was actually called by Emmeline B. Wells. Emmeline selected her in 1910 to be her second counselor, along with first counselor Clarissa S. Williams. And this presidency was served until Emmeline died in 1921. Another interesting thing about Julina was she was one of the first trained midwives in Utah, and she would die in Salt Lake City, Utah, and was buried in the Salt Lake Cemetery. She died on January 10, 1936. Julina dies at a really interesting time, the 1930s. I think the 1920s and the 1930s are a fascinating time in the LDS Church history. Fascinating. Julina would have been there to see the sort of old guard pioneers pass away like her parents that arrived in the valley in the 47s. She would be involved with a lot of famous people. And then she would see sort of she would give birth to the new generation that would go on and live into the 70s and the 80s. It's important to understand this time to know about her husband. Her husband, of course, is Joseph Fielding Smith Sr. Now, there are so many Smiths, there are so many Josephs, and apparently there are two Joseph Fieldings. So, as we Mormons do, we call Joseph Fielding Smith Sr. Joseph F. Smith, and we call his son Joseph Fielding Smith. So that's super confusing, I know, but we're going to be talking about Sr. Joseph F. Smith. He was born November 13, 1838, and would become the sixth president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's important to note he is number six. I'm going to talk about that later on. His number has some significance, and we'll explain that in a little bit. Now, he, of course, was Mormon royalty to about as close as it gets in Salt Lake City, Utah, because his father was Hiram Smith, of course. Hiram is killed, and uh, I think Joseph F. remembers memories of it at being six years old, I think at the time when it happened. He is one of the only Smith members, actual Smiths, that was so involved with Joseph and Hiram to come to Utah, so his presence is very important. Another thing that's really important is at the age of 15, Smith was called to go to his first LDS mission to the Sandwich Islands, which we now call the Hawaiian Islands. He was under the direction of Parley P. Pratt, and he was ordained an elder by George A. Smith. Now, we've talked about George A. Smith. He was um, involved in Mountain Meadows and and just a bigwig in, in the church at the time. He received his endowments and... Um, then he traveled to San Bernardino, California, where he worked to earn money for passage on a ship to San Francisco. In the San Francisco area, which is now known as Fremont, California, on the farm of John Horner, he was again employed in the agricultural pursuit seeking to earn money for passage to Hawaii. When he gets there, he successfully learns the language of the Hawaiian people, and he reports a lot of success. He has four years of missionary work on the islands. He would serve with various American companions, and he had two Hawaiian companions, Paike, who was 
a property manager for some of Jonathan Napilia's property. Joseph F. spent his mission on Maui, but later presided over a group of branch on the island of Hawaii and over all the church units in Malachi. Now, we're going to engage in speculation, but I feel like this story is too fascinating to pass up, and it really doesn't have a home anywhere else. So I'm going to let Tom Kimball tell his experience. When I heard the story, I really wanted it to be told only because if the information is accurate, I would really, really like this story to uh, get investigated. I would like someone to do some research. And that is the only reason why I want to tell it today is thinking about um, the women who are potentially involved in this story. It's important to me that uh, they have they have their lives and their work validated. And just so everyone is aware of, this is sort of bad history. This is not something you should take as any anything sort of substantial. Uh, this is just a conversation and a story with potential research implications. Okay, Tom, tell us about a little bit about who you are first. F- folks probably know who I am. I- my name is Tom Kimball. I'm the marketing director of Signature Books. Yeah, and you've been on the podcast before when we talked about yeah. the Kim- uh, Heber C. Kimball. So Correct. I found out this story when you and I were having lunch and you just told me <laughs> this fascinating story and I thought it was interesting. So do you want to... Do you just want to tell us the story? Well, all, all I can tell is, is my firsthand uh, uh, story. And that is that uh, a young lady called me on the phone at work. And she said that she had been referred to to me from somebody uh, to ask, to, to tell her story to and to see if I knew what it meant or what if I could help her. Because she didn't know, uh, she didn't know what it meant. And so she said that she was an orphan. She was raised in an orphanage and she was trying to find her family history and she had tracked down her mother and her mother was also an orphan and both of them, uh, were from Hawaii. And she said that she had contacted, uh, a, a genetics group, a study research group and had submitted a sample and that they had told her uh, four names that were her ancestors. And I didn't recognize the first three, but I certainly recognized Joseph F. Smith. So they linked her back to Joseph F. Smith directly? Correct. And was she of Pacific Islander descent? She said that she was born and raised in Hawaii, and so was her mother. So was her mother. So she knew that about her. And I'm assuming you're referring to the Sorensen Center who was doing... DNA testing in the 90s with BOU, and then they broke ties in 2003. She mentioned the Sorensen group. Okay. Um, um, but but I don't know any details. I don't remember any details beyond that. So are you saying that uh, Joseph F. Smith might have family that we, that we don't know about? I, I don't know what it means. All I know is what she told me. If, if it means what I'm thinking it means... What it could possibly mean, Joseph F. Smith wouldn't be the only one, right? We have Albert Carrington, who did the same sort of thing on his mission in England, and Willard Richards, just off the top of my head. They had children? Uh, They had relationships with women. Yeah, I I don't know what it means for Joseph F. Smith. Uh, All all I know is is what she told me. Um, And uh, I, I wrote it in my journal. 
Uh, I made some mistakes as far as gathering information that I think would have been important at the time, but I was really caught off guard by the conversation. It was a cold phone call, and I referred her to somebody who I thought could help her, and I don't believe that it got followed up on beyond that because I didn't hear from that person. So, And I didn't, uh, uh, other than what I wrote in my diary that day, you know, that, that's the only real record I have, physical record of, of the event. But this is completely speculative, right? Other than this is the experience that you had. When you say speculative, what do you mean by that? Oh, I just, I feel like uh, if this story were documented, it has sort of explosive consequences or ramifications, I guess. I, I don't know. I, and like I said, I don't know beyond what I've, what I've shared with you what, what it means. I have no idea what it means. Well, the reason why I want to, I want to, tell the story is because I'm hoping that somehow, somewhere, the people that you had talked to some years ago might be able to hear this and might be able to contact you again because I'm very fascinated in this. I hope they contact you. <laughs> or, or you can contact me. Well, thanks so much, Tom. I appreciate it. No worries. Hey, uh, it's nice chatting with you again. Again, there's nothing documented about this, or um, as far as I know, I've never heard any other rumblings, but Tom Kimball at Signature Books is completely convinced that this is a legit story. Now, Smith would eventually return to the Sandwich Isles in the 1860s because there was a man named Walter Gibson who was a Mormon, and he worked his way up the government hierarchy. He was a government minister in the Kingdom of Hawaii and started causing all kinds of problems. And Amanda Komodo and I are still trying to schedule time, but we're going to talk about the history of Polynesian saints and Yosepa and its relation to polygamy, so stay tuned for that. Joseph F. was also employed in the church historian's office for a long time. It was while he was working there that he would meet Julina Lamson, his second wife. She happened to be the niece of Bathsheba W. Smith, who was, of course, married to George A. Smith. Joseph F. Smith also served as a clerk in the endowment house. He became in charge of the endowment house after the death of Brigham Young, so that was an important job. Smith would be called back from his first mission in Hawaii to the Utah Territory in 1857. Of course, he gets involved in the conflicts with the Utah War. He would travel back and forth. Um, he joined the territory's militia called the Nauvoo Legion, and he would spend several months patrolling the east side of the Rocky Mountains. Later, he served as chaplain of Colonel Heber C. Kimball's regiment with the rank of captain. So remember, these guys aren't just like holy men wandering around giving blessings to people. They're, they also considered themselves military men, and they had titles to boot. I want to talk about Joseph F. Smith's first wife. We talked about his second wife. She gets a lot of praise, well-deserved praise. She was an incredible woman. But the one who doesn't get a lot of praise is Joseph's first wife, Levira Smith. In the LDS Church, Joseph F. was ordained as a 70 in March of 1858, so a year after he returns from his mission and he's involved in the Nauvoo militia. He then becomes a high priest and a member of the Salt Lake stake high council in October 1858. So young Joseph F. Smith is following in his father's footsteps and he's quickly at a young age moving up the ranks in the church. In 1860 he was 22 years old when he was sent on a mission to Great Britain and he and his cousin Samuel H. B. Smith drove mule teams over the plains to winter quarters to help pay their way. Shortly after arriving in England, this is just a fun distinction, but shortly after arriving in England, Smith was made the president, the conference president in Sheffield. And um, 
Another member of the church, William Fowler, was in the city at that time, and Smith was present at the meeting where Fowler's hymn, We Thank Thee, O God, for Our Prophet, was first sung. So he was there when that song was sung for the first time in England. Before we get into Levira's life, I really want to talk about her. There is one more thing I want to talk about that's important about Joseph F. Smith. Don Bradley and John Hamer have agreed to come on. We're going to record an episode in a few days about the affidavits, about the Temple Lock case, about all of the conflict going on with that, because that's something we just haven't covered yet, and it's critical to understanding the history of polygamy. Let me just give you some background. It was in 1866 that RLDS missionaries visited Utah for the first time. Now, again, for those who don't know, the RLDS were a group of uh, restorationist members who stayed in Nauvoo and did not come over with the saints to Utah. There was a split. They stayed with Emma. They called themselves Emma's Church later on, and they became vehement deniers of Joseph Smith's polygamy for a long time. They are now called the Community of Christ. They actually accept that Joseph was a polygamist. At least most circles do. Of course, you have some older generations that are very tied to these myths of Joseph being a monogamist and just are not able to give them up. But for the most part, the Community of Christ absolutely believes that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, and John Hamer is their historian, and he's going to come and talk about that. But anyway, so 1866, our LDS missionaries come to Utah for the first time, and they come with this message that the founder of Mormonism was a strict advocate for monogamy, a word that Mormons in Utah don't like very much. With little success, three years later, they send Alexander and David Smith, who happen to be the younger sons of Joseph Smith Jr., who was the founder of the LDS Church, to go to Utah. So they come to Utah with a similar message. Of course, the LDS Church feels threatened by this. Not only was Joseph Smith Jr., the founder of the church, and his own namesake, his own children were coming to Utah saying, you guys don't have the truth. Joseph was not a polygamist. Polygamy polygamy is wrong. He was a monogamist. But their brother, Joseph Smith the third threatened Brigham Young's authority line and legitimacy as prophet. So it was a huge threat. There was a lot of bad blood, if you will. They had a lot of clout. They were the sons of the founder of the church, Joseph Smith Jr., beloved Joseph. Who with such clout and family ties could possibly counter their claims? Well, we have Joseph F. Smith, devout Mormon, devout Brighamite Mormon, tied in with the hierarchy, soon to be a polygamist. And um, he is son to Hiram Smith, who was also martyred, and nephew to Joseph Smith Jr. So he really takes it upon himself to battle Joseph Smith III in this sort of public war for hearts and minds. And these two would battle it out for years and years and years, these two cousins, for the legitimacy of authority and the truth about polygamy. Knowing that they would have to challenge their own cousin, Alexander and David began compiling numerous testimonies for their claims. So they go back and and compile people stories who said, I know Joseph Smith Jr. was never a polygamist and here is why. Of course, Joseph F. Smith in turn begins doing the same thing. So Joseph F. Smith originally contacts the plural wives of Joseph Smith Jr. and asks if they were willing to testify against David and Alexander's assertions. This is where we get a lot of the affidavits that were signed by Joseph Smith. 
uh, by the wives of Joseph Smith, attesting that their union with the prophet was legit and that it was a plural sealing. Many of these affidavits were compiled into four different books, which Joseph F. Smith would use to defend the Utah church's position. And it's said that he would carry around these books. And um, at the time, I think the four books had 12, 12 women's testimonies. And he would whip them out and show proof that Joseph indeed was a restorer of polygamy. And the Salt Lake Tribune at the time of his death reported that he had become so obsessed with this, he did this until his death. Of course, he didn't stop with those 12 women. It's said that he collected affidavits till 1870, and he eventually ended up with 44 testimonies in his four books and 13 on a separate paper with a total of 58 different testimonies of Joseph Smith's plural marriage. There's this great essay by Don Bradley and Brian C. Hales in The Persistence of Polygamy, Volume 2, and I'm going to quote from them for just a moment. What is striking in his account of compiling the affidavit books is that his concern was not primarily with contemporaneous LDS-RLDS polemics, but with future historiography. With foresight befitting a prophet's namesake, Joseph F. aimed not so much to provide documentary evidence to continue his contemporary Utah saints who needed no such convincing, as to provide evidence that would convince future historians. When the living witnesses were gone, they would continue to speak as a voice from the dust through their written testimony and the historians who would make use of it, end quote. Now, they note in their essay that Joseph F. Smith's son, Joseph Fielding Smith, who would become the 10th prophet of the church, recorded 23 affidavits in his book, Blood Atonement and the Origin of Plural Marriage, and he wrote this book in 1905. And apparently, these affidavits were not discovered by any polygamous investigators, including Fawn Brody, Stanley Ivins, Vesta Crawford, or Lawrence Foster. They wouldn't know about them or review their existence. This is kind of an interesting story, but it wasn't until 1975 that Donnell Bachman was researching the archives for materials for his master's thesis, a study of the Mormon practice of plural marriage before the death of Joseph Smith, and Donnell Bachman would find them. He records, quote, I took the two boxes to my desk and opened them. There were two journal-like books in one box and a third one in the second box. I don't recall what other things, if any, were in the boxes, but I opened the first journal and the title page read, quote, 40 Affidavits on Celestial Marriage. I froze and my blood ran chill. I was so thrilled, but I worried that if someone in the archives knew what I was looking at, they may not want me to have it. End quote. And you can read about his experience in The Persistence of Polygamy, page 215. Joseph F. would serve two terms in the Utah Territorial House of Representatives, specifically from 1865 to 1870, and then from 1872 to 1874. He was also a member of the Salt Lake City Council for many years, and his position was a key advocate of setting up city parks. He was thus one of the people involved with the establishment of the famous Pioneer Park and Liberty Park in Salt Lake City, Utah, both favorites of mine. He was also in the Provost City Council in the late 1860s, and he served on the Territorial Council. He served as president of the State Con Constitutional Convention in 1882, and he was an, you know, avid politician. And so I think that that's important to remember when we talk about some of the things happening. Also, another great essay in The Persistence of Polygamy, Volume 2, is uh, Craig Foster's take on uh, the dynastic ties of plural marriage. In his essay, Craig Foster claims that there are really four primary reasons for plural marriage. Assistance being one, 
So to help people, to help women that didn't have help otherwise. Number two would be dynastic, to tie families together. Number three would be friendship because of genuine like affection or something like that. And then number four, proximity. These men usually married women that were close to them. He does a lot of the research of the dynastic connections. And I'm going to quote from him for a moment. Quote, throughout the remainder of his life, Brigham Young married other women for the purpose of taking care of them. The third prophet president of the LDS Church, John Taylor, did so as well. For example, Taylor married Sarah Thornton Coleman, widow of Prime Coleman, Lydia Dibble Granger, widow of Oliver Granger, and Mercy Fielding Smith, widow of Hiram Smith. Wilfred Woodruff married Mary Giles Meeks Webster for the same purpose. Other marriages were arranged because of the friendship ties between families. A significant number of women sealed to Brigham Young were from families with whom he had long-standing friendships. Many were either widows or divorcees with children. For example, Young's wife Diana Chase was the daughter of his friend Ezra Chase, and Mary Ann Turley was the daughter of Young's former missionary companion and close friend Theodore Turley. Brigham Young was not alone. John Taylor was friends in Nauvoo with Richard Ballantyne and his family. Taylor eventually married both Jane and Annie Ballantyne, Richard's sisters. Taylor also stayed several times in a hotel run by the Pitchforth family on the Isle of Man. Anne Hewling's Pitchforth eventually left her husband Solomon, who had not converted yet to Mormonism, and Taylor married Anne in 1846, but she died within the year. Previous to their marriage, Lorenzo Snow was good friends with the parents of Eleanor Hutes and her cousin Mary Elizabeth Hutes. Snow was also a friend and business partner of Hans Peter Jensen in the Brigham Manufacturing and Mercantile Association. And he, what he's doing is showing that these men had proximity to these women, but they were also marrying, you know, like if you were a prophet uh, and you had a best friend, you might marry his sister or his daughter or his niece. Because not only are you helping them out, but there are political reasons behind this and spiritual politics happening as well. It's a way to seal your families together. D. Michael Quinn would say in his book, Mormon Hierarchy, Extensions of Power, quote, Of the social characteristics of men who comprise a Mormon hierarchy during its first hundred years, 1832 to 1932, the most complex and perhaps the most significant were the family relationships of these men. At a primary level were kinship ties. No less significant were marriage connections. Convoluted relationships made the Mormon hierarchy an extended family, end quote. I'm going to say that last line again. Convoluted relationships made the Mormon hierarchy an extended family. I think that that is so important because we see that today. There are so many connections and ties. The Mormon hierarchy still is largely a family, an extended family. Everybody sort of knows everyone else and is married to everyone else. Of course, Wilford Woodruff married Clarissa Hardy, who was the daughter of his good friend, Leonard W. Hardy. This this marriage ended in divorce, and he would later marry Eudora Levina Young, who was the daughter of Brigham Young and Lucy Bigelow. That marriage also ended in divorce. But Joseph F. Smith by far had the highest amount of dynastic marriages. He had six wives, and all six were considered dynastic. His first wife, Levira Annette Clark Smith, was the daughter of Samuel H. Smith, his first cousin. No children resulted from that marriage, and we're going to talk about why, and it later ended in divorce. Now, Levira, who was 
irreconcilable to Smith's plural marriages, filed for divorce in California and accused him of, quote, adulterous intercourse with a concubine. And I need to point this out because I've seen this everywhere. It's so important when we to talk about because whenever I have read about Levira's divorce, you don't really hear Joseph's part in this or even the polygamous part. Many, many historians like to point out that Levira was, I'm using their term, quote, unwell. She was mentally unhealthy. She was very difficult to live with. She was depressed all the time. She would go in these fitful rages. That is what they blame the divorce for. But there are many more dimensions to that story. There is a fantastic article by Scott G. Kenny, published in Sunstone Magazine, titled, Before the Beard, Trials of the Young Joseph F. Smith. And I'm going to link to it because it's so great. You have to read it. The Sunstone article talks a lot about Joseph F. Smith's terrible temper. We know a little bit about his depression and things like that, but he also was said to have a lot of rageful tempers. And um, it's like a 24-page uh, PDF, but you, you really need to read it because it's so great. I'm going to read a quote from it about his wife, Levira. Quote, On his way to city council meeting on 4th of October, Joseph stopped by to retrieve his keys from Levira. The house was quite dark, except for one candle, by which he saw her sitting close to a Mr. Harris. Levira said he had been reading to her, to which Joseph retorted, if that were so, it was from a book with raised letters, and he had, he had read by hand. Joseph flew into a rage. According to Levira, he called her a damned whore a little stained illegitimate whore and a liar, and if he ever caught a man in my room again, there would be bloodshed if he had to swing for it. This is Levira's words. He threw my chair back against the stove and opened the front door so that passers-by could hear and said, Madam, if you want a divorce, I'll give you one. When I said, Very well, I'll take it this evening, so he left the house. In his own defense, Joseph would explain, quote, I was now almost choked with anger and humiliation and could not contain my rage. I was therefore not responsible for what I did, what I said or did. Still, I remember even everything distinctly. I do believe that if I had been armed, I would have done violence to him. I told him so. I told her plainly her conduct was whorish and illegitimate. I did not call her a whore. I asked her if she was not ashamed of herself, and if she thought such conduct was becoming of a married woman. And furthermore, whatever she thought of it, I considered it unbecoming and disgraceful, and so long as she was my wife, I would not allow it. And if ever I caught a stranger and a Gentile in her bedroom again under such circumstances, there would be bloodshed if I swung for it. End quote. Joseph was not responsible for what he said or did because he was filled with passion. That night he agreed to give Levira a divorce, but the next day he returned seeking reconciliation. He insisted he apologized, she insisted he apologized to Mr. Harris. And Joseph was said, quote, To this every feeling in me revolted. Nevertheless, after considering the matter, I wrote a studied apology to Mr. Harris, as non-compromising as I could word it, regretting that I had lost my temper and had spoken so harshly to my wife in the presence of a stranger, end quote. Levira accepted the apology, and things went on again as before, although a weight was upon my mind that almost disheartened me, for I saw where her course would lead her to. Now, there's also this uh, terrible account of him beating Levira. I'll read you some of that. Levira complains to Brigham Young that uh, Joseph would call say very terrible things to her. Now, of course, 
By many accounts, it seems like it was a tumultuous relationship. The two seem to have such passion to be in love and then both struggle with depression. But Levira accused Joseph F. of saying, quote, I ought to have a whole board in the top of my head and some manure put into it for brains. And Joseph responded by saying it was only a joke. That sometimes in her wandering, she was sometimes more jocular than ever and at, at any other time. And at some times, quote, I would joke with her. It was such a time she'd been complaining of her brain feeling muddled. I said, I have sometimes thought if a hole were bored into your head and some manure put into it, it might be an improvement. But never mind, you're go you are getting better now. I'm confident she perfectly understood me and knew it wasn't jest, but has since argued herself into the belief that I meant to insult her or to pretend to so believe to throw blame upon me and excuse her own conduct. Levira also talks about a separate incident when um, Joseph went to help her mother build a chicken coop. And here's what she says, quote, If I heard anything unusual, not to get up or look out. They had been out a long time. It seemed two hours to me, and I was very tired and anxious for someone to come in. Just then, a band of music came along and stopped by to play in front of our house. So I raised one corner of the blind and looked out the window. Joseph immediately came in with a rope, which he doubled four or five times, and he struck me five or six times across my back, not withstanding. I begged him not to strike me, and I said I was sorry that I had disobeyed him. End quote. Joseph countered that Levira was, quote, to all intents and purposes, insane or possessed, and I had to treat her as I would a willful and disobedient child. There was no one but me that could do anything with her. He defended himself, sometimes saying he had to use force to, quote, prevent her from doing herself injury and to compel her to take medicine and food. On the evening in question, he left to stow away some vegetables in the cellar, charging her strictly to lie still. Quote, for I knew that at least at the least noise she did not understand, and often at imaginary noises, she would jump out of bed and more than likely run out of doors in her nightclothes as she has attempted many times to do. After only a few minutes, end quote. After only a few minutes, he hears her get up, crosses the room. He rushes back to find her looking out the window at a band playing Dixie in front of the Gilbert and Company's boarding house across the street. To get her back into bed, he strikes her only twice, but not with a rope in his explanation, but, quote, but with a peach limb not as large around as the butt of an office pencil, end quote. And of course, Joseph is 23 at the time, and this, the reason why he claims that it's just a peach branch instead of a rope is because it was legal to beat your wife with things that were not very big at the time. So of course, they divorce and their tumultuous relationship ends, but I think that that's instructive to understand that he was no picnic to live with either. His second and fourth wives, Julina and Edna Lamson, who were both nieces of Bathsheba W. Bigler and George A. Smith. His third wife was Sarah Ellen Richards, daughter of Willard Richards and Sarah Longstroth. Sarah happened to be orphan at a young age and married young when she met Smith. His fifth wife was Alice Ann Kimball, daughter of Heber C. Kimball and Alice Ann Gein. Smith's sixth and last wife was Mary Taylor Schwartz, a niece of John Taylor. According to Craig Foster, quote, Almost all the women's parents reflected the heritage of the early Mormon converts. Two of Joseph F. Smith's wives had fathers from New England, while the others were from New York, end quote. After Levira divorces him in 1868, she moves back to California. He had a lot of children. Um, Thirteen of his children preceded him in death. On July 1st, 1866, Joseph F. was ordained an apostle by Brigham Young and sustained as counselor to the First Presidency, where he served until Brigham Young's death. He was not sustained as a member 
of the Quorum of the Twelve until the Church's October 1867 conference. He left for his second mission to England in 1874, and he served as the president of the European Mission from 74 to 75, and he returns upon the death of First Presidency member George A. Smith. He was then called to preside over the Davis Stake until he left in 1877 for his third mission to England. When news arrived at the death of Brigham Young, he was released, Smith was released and returned home. The following year, he served a mission to the eastern states with Orson Pratt, and they visited a lot of the old church sites in Missouri, Ohio, New York, and Illinois. During this trip, they would meet and interview David Whitmer. About three years after Brigham Young's death, uh, Joseph F. Smith is named the second counselor in the first presidency to church president John Taylor. Now, if you need to go back, listen to the episode where we talk about John Taylor sort of running from the law. He's sort of this fundamentalist hero because John Taylor was John Taylor was sticking it to the government every chance he could. He was adamant defender of plural marriage, and he was the guy that was hiding in, you know, the, the Gardo house in secret passageways to hide from the, the feds. So John Taylor would have been doing this in the 1880s when Joseph F. Smith is his second counselor. Of course, when Wilford Woodruff takes over, Joseph F. serves as second counselor to Wilford Woodruff and Lorenzo Snow. Smith was sustained as first counselor to Snow on the death of first counselor George Q. Cannon. But Snow died four days later, so Smith never really served in that position. He succeeded Snow as president of the Salt Lake Temple and served until 1911 when he was transferred when he transferred the responsibility to Anthony H. Lund. He was also the editor of the Improvement Era and the juvenile instructor and the general superintendent of the Sunday School and the Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association. He really was passionate about Utah becoming a state, tried to eliminate the ongoing federal supervision of the Utah Territory. So, following the official discontinuance of new plural marriages by Wilford Woodruff in 1890 and the dissolution of the Mormon People's Party in 1891, Smith really fought for the anti-polygamy Republican Party in Utah. Now, the reason why I'm telling you about all of this is because I need you to understand that Joseph F. Smith was pivotal in this change, in this changing church from polygamous church to non-polygamous church. He is writing the manuals. He's helped correlating things. He's running all these organizations, state and religious. He is involved in a lot of these, and that's important. And it's important to know his involvement and his experiences with plural marriage. Joseph F. was chosen by the Twelve Apostles and set apart as the president of the church on October 17th, 1901, and this was ratified by a special conference and solemn assembly of the priesthood on November 10th, 1901. Now, again, the fact that he is set apart as president of the church in November, in October, and then it was ratified by the priesthood council in November says something, and we'll talk about that in a minute. He chose John R. Winder of the U.K. and Anthony H. Lund of Denmark as his counselors. And after Winder died, Lund became the first counselor, and Smith's second cousin, John Henry Smith, became the second counselor. It's at this time that Joseph F. would give more influence to the presiding patriarch of the church than any other president had since Joseph Smith, Jr., 
the church presiding patriarch happened to be John Smith, who was um, Joseph F.'s elder half-brother. And this is important, too. So I have talked to fundamentalists, and I've seen it in fundamentalist writing, who claim that even though this is happening in, you know, the the early 1900s, they're claiming that at the time there was a, the presiding patriarch would put in every stake center a patriarch to sanction plural marriages. That's very controversial. And I have yet to see any credible documentation on that. If anyone out there has that, they, they're welcome to post uh, some sources in the comments. Joseph F. was really the first president of the church to travel outside of the United States or North America while being president of the church. In 1906, he went on a tour to Europe. And, you know, he had to deal with a lot of the fallout from the Reed-Smoot hearings. Smith supported Apostle Reed-Smoot's candidacy for the U.S. Senate. But, of course, Smoot was not considered because he was thought to be a polygamist. And um, there was a whole Senate investigation. We've talked about all this before. So by 1904, Smith is really trying to take steps publicly to prevent anyone saying that the church is still continuing plural marriage. We start to see a divide in the Quorum of the Twelve. On April 6, 1904, Joseph F. Smith would issue the Second Manifesto. He would declare that any church officer who performed a plural marriage, as well as the couple that was getting married, would be excommunicated. He clarified that the policy applied worldwide and not just in North America. Two members of the Quorum of the Twelve, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley, would resign. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Quorum of the Twelve. So this is when you have people getting married publicly or privately, apostles marrying these people. Joseph F. Smith allegedly, well, apparently privately, would turn, you know, a blind eye to it or encourage or console people that had gotten excommunicated. And, um, but publicly he really believed it was his job to show that the church was not doing this. So not only do, is plural marriage sacred at this point, it really becomes secret, more secret than ever before. Of course, John W. Taylor and Matthias F. Cowley are caught performing these marriages and, they resigned in 1905 following the Second Manifesto. Smith, Joseph F., continues to live with his plural wives after 1890 and the 1904 Manifestos. So in 1906, he is brought to trial on a charge of unlawful cohabitation with four women in addition to his lawful wife. He pleaded guilty and was fined $300, which happened to be the maximum penalty permitted by the law. Smith really takes his administration, which ran for about 17 years, seriously in trying to repair relationships with the federal government. And this is where we really see this influx of patriotism start coming. You know, this is where you see us really celebrating national holidays, start to have flags in people's homes. Smith is really trying to repair this. He also acquired historic sites and constructed numerous meeting houses, trying to expand the church system of education and was really dedicated to academies and universities. During his administration, let me just talk about some more influence he had. He would make significant statements of LDS doctrine. He would come out with the origin of man. In 1909, the First Presidency issues a statement concerning evolution and LDS doctrine. In the origin of man, it affirms that God created man in his own image and really talks about the premortal existence of man and about how men are capable 
to evolve into God. So that's the origin of man. He also came out with the Father and the Son. This is in 1916. The first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles issued a statement using the LDS term Father in Scripture, clarifying that there were times when the word referenced God the Father and when the word referenced Jesus Christ. So if you want to look at the origins of that doctrine, that comes from the Father and the Son. He also came out with the vision of the redemption of the dead. Uh, this would be in 1918. Smith apparently received a revelation on the nature of the spirit world and on Jesus Christ's role in ensuring the gospel was would be taught to all men living and dead. This revelation was presented to general authorities in October 31, 1918 and was unanimously accepted. It was published in December 1918 and was added to the Pearl of Great Price in April 1976. It has since been removed from the Pearl of Great Price and added to the DNC as Section 138. And it's said that this revelation complemented an 1894 statement on the internal, eternal nature of family and work for the dead issued by Wilford Woodruff. It's also said that because of this, genealogy and family history work really skyrocketed and became a cultural as well as sort of theological um, priority for a lot of members. Historian Christopher C. Smith gives a fascinating account of sort of Joseph F. Smith's hypocrisy being questioned by his own. Now, B.H. Roberts apparently called Joseph F. Smith to task in a general conference talk in 1909. According to Christopher C. Smith, this was the only time that really an apostle went on the stand on the podium and called other members of the leadership to task, accusing them of being sort of hypocritical in their double speak. I will link to it. There's a Sunstone presentation that Christopher C. Smith, Joe Geisner, and D. Michael Quinn gave talking about B.H. Roberts. So make sure to check that out. It's fascinating. Now, of course, B.H. Roberts was quite hypocritical himself. He had one post-manifesto marriage himself too, but he sort of, he really calls the brethren out on some things. One of the things he calls them out was that they were violating the church's stance on political neutrality. The church had issued a statement in 1896 saying, quote, we unanimously agree to and promulgate as a rule that should always be observed in the church and by every leading official thereof, that before accepting any position, political or otherwise, which would interfere with the proper and complete discharge of ecclesiastical duties, and before accepting a nomination or entering into engagements to perform new duties, said official should apply to the proper authorities and learn from whether he can, consistently with the obligations already entered in into with the church upon assuming his office, take upon himself the added duties and labors and responsibilities of the new position. To maintain proper discipline and order in the church, we deem this absolutely necessary, and in asserting this rule, we do not consider that we are infringing in the least degree upon the individual rights of the citizen, end quote. So in 1896, as part of Joseph F. Smith's campaign to sort of, you know, build relationships with the government, he says, we're not going to be involved. They issued this statement, and so B.H. Roberts, in this conference in 1909, gets over the pulpit and says, you guys are not doing this. You are not fulfilling your responsibility. Christopher C. Smith asserts that it's not just about post-manifesto hypocrisy, but also the fact that Joseph S. Smith was an ardent Republican, 
while B.H. Roberts was a Democrat. Christopher C. Smith would tell me in a conversation, quote, In conjunction with the 1890 Manifesto and the bid for Utah statehood, the church dissolved the People's Party, its longtime instrument for controlling state politics. Most Mormons flocked to the Democratic Party, but some leaders went over to the Republicans and began calling upon members to do the same. This was partly to avoid the appearance of block voting and to win Republican support for the bid for statehood, but it is also partly because the leaders were wealthy businessmen and the Republicans were the party of capital, end quote. So you start to see this change. A lot of people move over to the Democratic side because, of course, the Republican hosted the anti-Mormon party, the People's Party, for a long time. So Mormons were naturally distrustful of this. So when they see people like Joseph F. Smith go over, it must have been unsettling. By 1892-93, there were open feudings between apostles who were quite earnestly, you know, campaigning for rival parties. Here's what Christopher says about this, quote, The membership remained predominantly democratic, but Republicans dominated church leadership thanks to the influence of church president Joseph F. Smith, Quorum of the Twelve President Francis F. Lyman, and other prominent apostles such as Reed Smoot and John Henry Smith. These men quietly interfered in politics through the agency of middlemen such as Nephi L. Morris, who made their wishes known to Mormon voters and legislators. Democrats like Roberts and Ivins understandably felt trammeled. The church press published repeated denials of political interference in connections with the Utah Commission of 1891 and again in connection with the Senate investigation of Smoot. One of the most explicit was addressed to the world in 1907, end quote. So you see the struggle of telling one thing to the, to the public and telling something privately sort of bleeds into politics, where now they're saying, we don't do this, we don't tell Mormons how to vote anymore, but they have a middleman like Nephi L. Morris that they would tell, and he would go tell the average members this is what the brethren really think that you should be doing, this is what a good Latter-day Saint does. And B.H. Roberts gets really frustrated with this. Joseph F. would die of pneumonia in Salt Lake City on November 19, 1918. He would be succeeded by Heber J. Grant. There was a widespread influenza pandemic in 1918 to 1920, and so there was a graveside service held rather than a public funeral. He was interred in the Salt Lake City Cemetery several days later on November 22, 1918. Now, we're going to be talking about Heber J. Grant in the next episode and, and some of the women he was involved with and some of the ways he affected polygamy. But after he dies, after Joseph F. dies, you know, Joseph F. is really starting to enforce publicly the practice of plural marriage, but privately it is said that he supported it. He lived with his plural wives. Of course, he was a counselor to John Taylor. He really, really believed in this doctrine. In fact, he spent the majority of his life fighting his cousin to prove that it was an essential doctrine. Please do not forget how dedicated he was to this practice, because publicly he's the man that sort of was said to usher it out, and yet Privately, he held such convictions. That's important to note because many Mormon fundamentalists really have a love for Joseph F. Smith, but they really, really hate Heber J. Grant. And that confused me. I thought, well, Joseph F. Smith was the one that was enforcing this. How could that be? But again, if you see his connections, he there are a lot of unsubstantiated rumors 
that fundamentalists will assert, a lot of it are written in the Fundamentalist magazine, Truth magazine, where they claim that Joseph F. Smith was absolutely institutionally involved with supporting polygamy. And there are non-rumors. We have accounts of him doing so. I'm going to read a quote from Brian Hill's book about Mormon fundamentalists. This is on page 117. He says, quote, Over 16 years had passed since the 1904 official statements, which signaled an end to authorized plural marriages, followed by excommunications beginning about 1910. During those two decades, after 1904, two important changes had occurred. The first was secrecy. Plural marriages contracted prior to 1904 were kept secret from the government because they were illegal and the participants wished to avoid prosecution. Those entered into after 1904 were kept even more secret from the government because they were illegal and the participants wished to avoid prosecution. Those entered into after 1904 were kept even more secret because both church leaders and government officials were on the lookout and would apply the penalty penalties available to each. So what they're saying is it became even more secret now because not just the government was after you, but now your church leaders could be after you, even though everybody still sort of believed in it. But we also know that there's a cultural shift happening. Polygamy is starting to be looked down on. It's brought a lot of persecution. There's this modern era. People want to be done with it. They want to be modernized. They're um, going to be serving in wars soon with other people. They want to really be seen as normal. Back to Brian Hell's quote. The excommunication of John W. Taylor, which was the, one of the apostles that served with Joseph F. Smith. John W. Taylor, not John Taylor, the church member, the church president. Quote, the excommunications of John W. Taylor and the determination of church leaders to stamp out new plural marriages, excommunication notices were routinely published in the Deseret News. Consequently, those engaging in new polygamous unions took elaborate precautions to conceal their clandestine relationships from neighbors and other acquaintances. However, by the mid-1920s, the need for secrecy diminished as the government showed less inclination to prosecute polygamy. On the church side... Dozens of polygamists had already been excommunicated, thus experiencing the severest penalty the church could exact. A second change during the 1920s involved a sheer number of individuals who now found themselves outside the church. As the quantity of excommunications grew throughout the 1910s and 1920s, a critical mass of dissenters formed who would give rise to various groups and alliance for decades to come. Coupled with church members who sympathized with their views, a fundamentalist movement was coalescing across the Wasatch Front. Many continued to attend their LDS wards and stakes, but many polygamists would congregate privately in homes afterwards. No identifiable leaders would emerge until the 1930s, which we have covered in our end quote. We've covered that in our fundamentalist portion of the series, the leaders who emerged in the 1930s. Now, like I said, many contemporary fundamentalists believe that that during Joseph Smith's reign, he would split the office of church president and make it separate from the president of the priesthood. And we talk about this. There's sort of this suspicion that that's why he was um, sort of voted into a separate priesthood conference later on because the the offices are separate. There's there are some theories that have to do with this. Centennial Park, as we listened to last episode, is one of the biggest proponents of this theory. They really believe the priesthood office is separate than the president of the church. Because of this, fundamentalists believe that priesthood ordinations in the early 20th century were performed incorrectly. And so that means that the ordainee did not actually receive the priesthood authority. 
Joseph Musser, one of the big Mormon fundamentalist fathers, would say in an article titled Priesthood Ordinances, published in Truth Magazine in June of 1948, quote, Our missionaries in the field, those acting as priests, elders, and high priests at home, operating with the priesthood, produce a serious, tragic problem that, as we see it, only the one mighty and strong can unravel and bring order out of the chaotic condition the church finds itself in, end quote. Now, the one mighty and strong, we've talked about this specifically in the LeBaron episode and we've talked about this elsewhere, but the one mighty and strong is, you know, um, mentioned in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's a huge, huge fundamental scripture. It's because at the end of Joseph F. Smith's reign, who is said to have split the offices to protect polygamy, so priesthood could be separate, so the, the plural marriages could still be legit, while uh, the church president could still run the offices of the church while he was trying to repair things with the government, that he was um, preparing the way. And um, retrospectively, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists say that this history was something that had been prophesied about. Arnold Boss wrote in an article called Spiritual Bondage in Truth Magazine in October of 1935, quote, In the time of the seventh president of the church, and the seventh president of the church would be Heber J. Grant after Joseph F. Smith, the church would go into bondage both tempor temporarily and spiritually, and in that day, that one mighty and strong spoken of in the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants would come. Since the official action taken which repudiated, repudiated plural or celestial marriage in 1890, there has been no revelation given through the heads of the church, end quote. Now again, this is a theory for why we don't have any modern revelation from church presidents. Fundamentalists believe it's because after Joseph F. Smith, Anything that was considered a revelation is not legit. There is still this conspiracy theory amongst many people, mostly Mormon fundamentalists, but other people that believe that Joseph F. Smith did split the offices and that the current LDS church leaders know this. That is why they don't call the family proclamation a doctrine. That is why they don't talk about new revelations, because according to this belief, Church presidents after Joseph F. Smith, so Heber J. Grant on forward, do not have the priesthood authority for these sacred ordinances and revelation. They have authority to run the day-to-day -day affairs of the church, but they do not have the authority to perform sealings, to perform these special marriages. So by a fundamentalist standpoint, we, people like me who are married in the temple, kind of have a sad state because we don't really count necessarily if men were ordained after this point, if that makes any sense. And of course, their revelations written ret retrospectively. Um, I find dates in the 30s and the 40s, I haven't seen anything sooner than that, say that the one mighty and strong is supposed to come after the seventh president of the church. And of course, that's Heber J. Grant. Seven is a notorious number in Mormon theology and in Christian theology. Seven, the seven seals, seven days to create the earth. And in this case, it's seventh prophet that brings a church, the LDS church, into apostasy, fulfilling a lot of those revelations. The church becomes out of order. That is where the one mighty and strong comes from. That is where you see when Heber J. Grant steps up, you start to see all these fundamentalist men vying for authority, claiming to be the one mighty and strong. Here is how fundamentalist leader Fred Collier explains it in Doctrine of the Priesthood, Volume 13, Number 1, Shedding New Light on Lauren Woolley, quote, 
In coming to understand the fundamentalist beginnings, the affinity and love of early fundamentalist leaders for Joseph F. Smith, as contrasted with the bad feelings of Heber J. Grant, which were mutually held, it needs to be explained. Be it remembered that even during the administration of Joseph F. Smith, there were times when it became necessary to excommunicate certain individuals who had entered plural marriage and who had been exposed. Even great men such as Apostle John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley, who were offered up as scapegoats in order to protect the church for its post-manifesto involvement in plural marriage. Not only this, but Joseph F. Smith also made strong public announcements against the late practices of entering into plural marriage. So did Heber J. Grant. Yet, notwithstanding this, for some reason, early fundamentalist leaders still loved Joseph F. Smith, while they despised Grant. The reason for this was because they knew that Joseph F. Smith was their friend, and out of necessity he was leading a double life. They knew that his public pronouncements were made for public consumption, but that privately he held other feelings and that he was involved in other activities, and activities too with which they were personally acquainted. That this was in contrast to President Grant, who by the time he had become president was intent on terminating the practice of plural marriage altogether, and who in every sense of the word, rather than being their friend, was actually their mortal enemy. Who would even go so far as to use his influence with state officials to have them put in prison for their persistence in plural marriage? And of course, it's Fred Collier that claims that he had the interview in 1979 with Price Johnson, where uh, Price Johnson told him that there was a patriarch in every state president in every stake of the church to perform plural marriages for worthy individuals. Joseph Musser wrote in his journal of June 14, 1922, quote, Had a long talk with John T. Clark, told me of a conversation with Lawrence E. Woolley a few days ago. Brother Woolley told him that President John Taylor received his revelation in 1886 at his father's home, and while surrounded with a halo of light, among other things, President Taylor said in substance, at the time of the seventh president in the church, the church will be in spiritual and financial bondage, and then the Lord will raise up a deliverer as a spokesperson of in the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. End quote. So this is in 1922. Musser is claiming that when the seventh president of the church comes, the church is going to be in financial bondage. Of course, in our next episode with Heber J. Grant, you're going to hear about how the church was in financial bondage. And so this is really one of the thrusts of the fundamentalist arguments, that John W. Taylor says that the seventh president of the church is really when it all goes downhill. So next episode, we'll talk about that. Before we go, I'm going to play a clip of an actual recording of Joseph F. Smith's voice where he apparently admonishes church members to serve faithfully and assures them that he was firm in the faith. And um, you can go to the Church History website to learn more about his life. I will link to this recording. It's so fascinating, so fascinating. But he says, Please remember me kindly to all your people and assure them that I am still firm in their faith. And there is nothing in the world as evident than the performance of my duties as a servant in the cause of truth. May the Lord bless you and your family, and all who cooperate with you for the truth's sake. I am most sincerely your brother, and that's the end. And this is from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I'm going to play that clip, and we'll end there. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Please remember me kindly to all your people, and assure them 
that I am still firm in the faith. And there is nothing in the world that's ever than the performance of my duty as a servant in the cause of truth. May the Lord bless you and your family and all who cooperate with you for the truth's sake. I am most sincerely your brother.